Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey kids, it's getting close to that special time of year. Black Friday! Okay, so Christmas is coming too, so Santa, if you're listening, you can get 20% off everything at abitteralmond.com from today until midnight, Black Friday. abitteralmond.com is the place to go to for t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other gifts that show your love of true crime without making you look like a serial killer, fangirl, or boy. Their true crime cliché cushion is the perfect accomplice for binging on true crime documentaries, and their keychains make great stocking stuffers. My favorite says, I just want to walk my dog and listen to my murder podcast. Visit abitteralmond.com. That's a bitter, a b i t t e r, almond a l m o n d dot com, a b i t t e r a l m o n d dot com, and let me know which is your favorite, and stay safe at those door crashers. Welcome to Human Monsters, Part 1, The Bad Seed. Mary Flora Bell was born on May 26, 1957, in Corbridge, Northumberland, England. The circumstances of her childhood were grim. Mary wouldn't have known good luck if it had kicked her in the face. Metaphorically speaking, life must have felt that way to this girl at the time. Her mother, Elizabeth Betty Bell, was a prostitute, and it was no secret among the townies. As for her maternal presence, well, there barely was one. She was an absentee. She frequently commuted to Glasgow, Scotland, to ply her trade. The only parental figure to care for her children was Mary's father, if he happened to be around. This father figure wasn't Mary's biological father, whose identity was unknown to her and would remain so. At this time, Mary believed that her father was a man named William Billy Bell. He was an alcoholic with a violent temper. He frequently ran afoul of the law, with a record for crimes that included armed robbery. Mary was an infant when he married her mother. Nobody was ever able to determine if he was Mary's biological father. Betty ordered Mary to address him as 
uncle. This was to ensure that when she received government assistance, Mary wouldn't let the cat out of the bag when a worker was visiting. The pregnancy that yielded Mary was accidental, and a child's presence mostly felt burdensome for Betty. As noted by Mary's aunt, Isa McCricket, Betty resented hospital staff who tried to place her daughter in her arms. She shouted at them, saying, Take the thing away from me! Throughout her infancy and early childhood, Mary sustained injuries on a regular basis. These occurred when she was alone with her mother. Given her mother's complete lack of maternal love for her daughter, outsiders speculated that these were not typical childhood accidents. They opined that Betty may have been deliberately trying to harm or even kill her daughter. This was not an unreasonable assumption. Once, in 1960, Betty dropped Mary from a first-floor window. One day she gave her sleeping pills. She gave her poisoned candy. She was also said to have sold Mary to a mentally ill woman who was unable to conceive. Betty's older sister, Catherine, could not bring herself to accept this, and she journeyed to Newcastle to retrieve Mary. She returned her to Betty's home. Relatives offered to take care of Mary, knowing she would have had a much better life under their roof. Betty refused these offers. This decision was unfortunate for many reasons, but the most egregious of which was she augmented her work in the sex trade as a dominatrix and hustled her child to pedophiles. Mary was used as a quote-unquote sexual prop in BDSM scenarios as early as the age of four. When grilled about bringing her clients around her children, Betty said, at least I made sure the whips and stuff were hidden. Some examples of the sexual tortures and humiliations to which Mary was subjected by her mother for the enjoyment of her clients. Betty stripped Mary naked so that her client could masturbate and ejaculate into her mouth. Betty whispered into her ear to be a good girl and swallow. Mary could only vomit. Mary was vaginally penetrated by her mother's clients on a regular basis. Mary was taken to clients' homes where she was either raped or old men would masturbate as they molested her. Betty succeeded at normalizing sexual impropriety in Mary's life. This was demonstrated one day when Betty's lodger, Harry, was having a nap. He woke up as Mary was undoing his pants and trying to pull out his penis. Harry was considerably disturbed and recoiled in shock. He demanded to know what she was doing. She was upset, since most men she undressed were rather pleased by the whole thing. Realizing her value as a sexual commodity at an early age, Mary cut out the middle woman, Betty, and began to ply her trade on her own by the age of eight. 
She got into men's cars and did everything her mother taught her how to do, only now she got to keep all the money. She was streetwise. If a man refused to pay, Mary threatened to have a so-called uncle come around and beat him up. That always straightened them out. Mary's relatives observed that by the age of two, Mary shut down emotionally. She only made an exception for anger. Years later, Mary confessed that she refused to cry as a child because she deemed tears as symbolic of weakness. Even in court as a child, she didn't cry when she was handed the sentence that put her away for years. Children who are and or have been abused are prone to the phenomenon characterized as acting out. Sure enough, some of Mary's behavior was disturbing to adult onlookers. Mood swings with abrupt transitions were not uncommon. She was a chronic bedwetter. Whenever she wet the bed, Betty would grab her hair and ground her face into the wet spots so she would be housebroken like a dog. Doing anything to degrade and humiliate Mary so as to erode her self-esteem seemed to be an obsession for Betty. The way she saw it, Mary's only value to her was in selling her body to perverts and getting additional social assistance. Aside from financial benefit, Mary was of no use to Betty, and Betty frequently attempted to murder her in ways that would defy scrutiny, but she lacked the resources, personal or otherwise, to do so while avoiding detection. Mary got into fights with other children, whether they were boys or girls. She even went as far as to strangle or suffocate other children. One time she tried to block the trachea of a little girl with sand. Once, when a teacher confronted Mary after she was found choking another student, Mary said she didn't understand why this behavior was wrong. She truly didn't get that it would hurt or kill the child. She just didn't realize how dangerous her actions were. Having established these behaviors as a pattern, the other children no longer wanted to play with Mary. Her only close friend was a girl who lived next door. Children who knew Mary well later told authorities that Mary tortured and killed small animals. Mary even told authorities that she enjoyed, quote, hurting little things that can't fight back, end quote. The psychiatric community knows very well that these are the early warning signs of antisocial behavior. While police were searching for the culprit who committed her first murder, Mary would proclaim, I am a murderer. Her tone was remembered as being boastful. Part 2. First Blood May 25, 1968 the corpse of four-year-old Martin Brown was found in a vacant house. At first glance, it was assumed to have been an accident. There were no signs of foul play. He was found by two boys who were hunting for scrap wood 
and went into the house in search of other treasures. When they found Martin Brown's body, they saw an empty aspirin bottle lying nearby. Investigating police assumed the boy died from an overdose. Details that presented a possible contradiction were dried blood and saliva on his cheek that ran all the way down to his chin. Still, since there were no scars on his body, it seemed like he lied down and never got up. Mary Bell would say as much at school after the news of Brown's death became common knowledge. In fact, for some kind of class assignment, Mary drew a picture of a boy lying in the same position in which Martin Brown was discovered. Next to the boy was a bottle she labeled Tablet. She wrote a caption on the picture that said, There has been a boy who just laid down and died. The teacher didn't think anything of it. After all, every child in her class was affected by the boy's death and would process and express their feelings in their own way. The teacher assumed Mary was going for art therapy. At the scene of the crime, Mary brought Norma in to show off her handiwork. Shortly thereafter, she ran to the boy's aunt and told her she knew her family was searching for Martin and that she knew where he was. She told her to follow her because she saw his body and he had, quote, blood all over, end quote. His aunt followed Mary to the scene. For the next few days, Mary and Norma would knock on Martin's aunt's door and subject her to a barrage of questions. This went on for so long, his aunt would no longer answer the door when they knocked. Community activists lobbied to have the city demolish derelict buildings so that this tragedy would not happen to other children. In a photograph from one demonstration, two children can be seen holding a banner that stated the locals wanted action taken to prevent similar incidents. One of the children was Mary Bell. Like an arsonist toasting marshmallows, she wanted to savor every aspect of her handiwork. May 26, 1968. Mary's 11th birthday. It was also the day when her friend Norma's father reported Mary to the police because she attacked Norma. It was a vicious assault with Mary scratching her face and kicking her in the head. Norma's father was forced to physically remove Mary from the premises. This was not a standalone incident. Anybody who was acquainted with Mary by this point was aware of her violent tendencies. Martin Brown's mother was going about her business at home when there was a knock at the door. When she opened the door, she found Mary Bell standing there. She had a creepy smile on her face. Mary asked Mrs. Brown if she could see Martin. Martin's mother presumed Mary knew nothing of Martin's death, so she said, No, pet. Martin's dead. Still with a creepy smile, Mary said, Oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. Being the last thing Martin's mother wanted to hear at that point in time, 
She gasped and slammed the door in the little ghoul's face. Martin's mother was shocked and astonished that a child could be so callous and cruel-hearted. It took a moment for it to sink in, since it was so surreal in its malevolence. It was hard to believe it had actually happened. Contributing to this evaluation was the certainty that Mary's intention was to inflict a wound within the periphery of the affliction that was sure to remain impervious to reparation. Martin's mother would never forget the sinister look on that face. Even the putrescent amniotic sack of Stephen King's imagination could not have yielded offspring as baleful in disposition as Mary Flora Bell at that moment. This bastard child out of hell made a crucial mistake. Nobody else in the neighborhood was as delighted by the death of Martin Brown as she, and one couldn't help but feel suspicious. Martin Brown's family were indigent, so all they could afford as a burial plot was a pauper's grave without a headstone. It was decorated only with flowers brought by his mother faithfully, without fail. Mary's aggressive behavior and claims of being a murderess were mocked and disbelieved by the children. They interpreted it as a display of braggadocio propped up by grandiose delusion. Under these circumstances, she confessed to the murder of Martin Brown, and nobody took her seriously. Part 3. Second Blood July 11th, 1968 Somehow, Mary Flora Bell managed to lure three-year-old Brian Howe to a trash heap dubbed by local children as Tin Lizzie. Norma must have been a glutton for punishment with low self-esteem for she accompanied the two children to the site. Whether or not Norma was directly involved in this crime, her culpability was assured. She was a witness with knowledge of the identity of the assailant, and she had the power to bring the proceedings to a halt. Any protestations of innocence were self-invalidated. The knowledge of right and wrong does not reside exclusively within the domain of adulthood. When Brian Howe was found, he was dead and left as a feast for feral scavengers between some concrete blocks. He was partially nude. There were signs of foul play. He had been suffocated and strangled. These weren't the worst of the indignities visited upon the cadaver of Brian Howe. Mary came equipped with a razor and a pair of scissors. She started by cutting clumps of his hair out. She gouged holes in his thighs. Having advanced all the way up that territory, she partially skinned his penis. One could never accuse Mary Flora Bell of being risk-averse leaving her mark behind as a signature of sorts, 
she took up the razor and carved the letter M in Brian's abdomen. Brian's lips had turned cyanotic now that his body was completely devoid of oxygen. Mary ran her hands over his lips and told Norma she enjoyed the sensation tremendously. For Mary Flora Bell, the tactile sensations gleaned from a corpse were just as sensuous as the act of murder. She harvested a melange of dried grass and purple wildflowers, which was utilized to garnish Brian's corpse in dubious tribute. Now that Mary was done with Brian's body, it was time to inflict another kind of torture, this time on his family. The impact on them would be psychological. She went to the house homestead, expecting them to be on the lookout for Brian, who was due home for dinner. Upon her arrival, Brian's sister Pat was searching for him. Mary approached her with a malevolent grin. By this point, this look was so familiar to everybody who knew her, it was practically soldered to her face. They discussed Brian's absence, and Mary offered to help find him. They searched far and wide, over railroad tracks, and in derelict cars. The classic discarded refrigerators children were cautioned against using for hide-and-seek were opened. No dice. Mary suggested that maybe he had been playing near the concrete blocks at Tin Lizzie. Mary was impatient to see the horror on Pat's face upon discovering her beaten, battered, and murdered brother. Up until then, the experience for Mary Flora Bell yearned for consummation, and the reactions of his family were to bring her discordant symphony to a crescendo, with a cacophony of their laments slashing into the atmosphere. Somehow this search did not result in Pat locating Brian's body, so she went home, much to everybody's disappointment, including Mary's. 11.30 p.m. Mary woke. There was a commotion outside her house. It turned out Brian Howe's body had been found. Police were canvassing the neighborhood, speaking to everybody who might have had information. Children from toddlers to teenagers were questioned. Two of the children questioned stood out from the rest. It was because of their reactions to the questions. Norma's disposition was described as, quote-unquote, excited. As for Mary, one officer was quoted as saying, she was continually smiling, as if it was a huge joke. Aside from finding the humor in the tragedy, Mary didn't seem to be affected by it. Brian's family remembered something that happened after Martin's murder that struck them as potentially crucial to the investigation. Mary had not only visited their home after the murder, but she disclosed information that promised to crack the case wide open. She told his family, quote, something about Norma that would get her put away, end quote. Mary said Norma wrapped her hands around Brian's throat. She said, 
She pressed, and he just dropped. To relish this detail for her own amusement, she wrapped her hands around her own throat and dropped to the floor. Though her theatrics were untimely and insensitive, they were revealing. After all, Mary was well known among the neighborhood's children as an armchair serial killer with a penchant for strangling children. Mary told police she suddenly, quote-unquote, remembered seeing an eight-year-old boy hitting Brian and pushing him around unprovoked. She also noted that he had a pair of scissors on hand. She described them as, quote, silver-colored and something wrong with the scissors, like one leg was either broken or bent, unquote. Nobody had mentioned the scissors before this moment. The police had never even entertained the possibility that scissors were involved as a murder weapon. It occurred to them now that Mary Flora Bell was likely the perpetrator, but there was more work to be done. Morgue workers are jaded and seldom shaken after years of working on the dead, including deceased children. But the morgue workman who examined the body of Brian Howe was appalled and nauseated. This kind of morbidity visited upon the corpse of a child was the stuff of nightmares and post-traumatic stress disorder. On the day of Brian's funeral, investigators questioned Norma. She told them she was informed by Mary that she had killed Brian and took her to see the body. The police took Norma to Tin Lizzie and examined the site where Brian's body was recovered. She was able to walk straight to the spot with no guidance from the police. Norma lay on the ground to demonstrate the orientation in which Brian's body was positioned. She told them about Mary's razor blade and the mutilation to which she subjected Brian post-mortem she showed the officers where Mary hid the razor shortly before fleeing the scene. It was still there, hidden beneath a rock. The razor was unknown to investigators before that moment. Now they knew that Norma was present at the scene while the crime was in progress and was likely an accomplice. She quoted a statement made by Mary to Detective Dobson squeezed his neck and pushed up his lungs. That's how you kill him. Following up, Mary cautioned Norma against reporting the murder, saying, keep your nose dry and don't tell anybody. Detective Dobson's bifocal scrutiny of Mary zeroed in with laser-like precision on her actions and the cut of her psychological profile. Commenting on his observations of Bell, he said, Mary Bell was standing in front of the house house when the coffin came out. I was, of course, watching her, and it was when I saw her there that I knew I did not dare risk another day. She stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in, or she'll do another one. 
Norma was brought in to give a formal statement. Mary was presented with her statement. Her reaction, I am making no statements. I have made a lot of statements. It's always me you come for. Norma's a liar. She always tries to get me in trouble. Dobson had a trick up his sleeve for Mary. He bluffed by saying a man saw her at the location where Brian Howe's body was located and that he would be able to identify her. He told her the man shouted at some children for loitering in that area and had clearly seen both Mary and Norma as they were scurrying away. Mary said, He would have to have good eyesight. Dobson said, Why would he need good eyesight? Mary started with, Because he was... She stopped short. After a searching pause, she said, Clever to see me when I wasn't there. She refused to give a statement about her actions or the accusations. She said she was going home because she was, quote, being brainwashed, end quote, by the authorities. She asked him if the police station was bugged. Dobson would later remark that she was acting like a character out of the narrative of a police-themed film or television program. After a few more hours, she was permitted to leave. Mary grew up around criminals, and some of their wisdom rubbed off on her. She knew not to talk to cops. She saw the police as the enemy, the people who separate children from their families. Her perspective on law enforcement was of the us-versus-them distinction. Mary Flora Bell did finally make statements on the record, and nobody was prepared for the cold-blooded malice. Never before had they heard such shocking pronouncements from a child. This is Mary Bell's official statement as given to police. I, Mary Bell, wish to make a statement. I want someone to write down what I have to say. I have been told that I need not say anything unless I wish to do so, but that whatever I say may be given in evidence. Signed, Mary F. Bell. Brian was in his front yard, and me and Norma were walking along towards him. We walked past him, and Norma says, Are you coming to the shop, Brian? And I says, Norma, you've got no money. How can you go to the shop? Where are you getting it from? She says, Nebby, keep your nose clean. Little Brian followed, and Norma says, Walk up in front. I wanted Brian to go home, but Norma kept coughing, so Brian wouldn't hear us. We went down Cross Hill Road, with Brian still in front of us. There was this colored boy, and Norma tried to start a fight with him. She said, Darky, whitewash. It's time you got washed. The big brother came out and hit her. She shouted, Hallway, put your dukes up. The lad walked away and looked at her as though she was daft. We went beside Dixon's shop and climbed over the railings. I mean through a hole and over the railway. Then I said, Norma, where are you going? And Norma said, Do you know that little pool where the tadpoles are? When we got there, there was a big long tank with a big round hole 
with little holes round it. Norma says to Brian, Are you coming in here? Because there's a lady coming on the number 82, and she's got boxes of sweets and that. We all got inside. Then Brian started to cry, and Norma asked him if he had a sore throat. She started to squeeze his throat, and he started to cry. She said, This isn't where the lady comes. It's over there by them big blocks. We went over to the blocks, and she says, Our, you'll have to lie down. And he lay down beside the blocks where he was found. Norma says, Put your neck up. And he did. Then she got hold of his neck and said, Put it down. She started to feel up and down his neck. She squeezed it hard. You could tell it was hard because her fingertips were going white. Brian was struggling, and I was pulling her shoulders, but she went mad. I was pulling her chin up, but she screamed at me. By this time, she had banged Brian's head on some wood or corner of wood, and Brian was lying senseless. His face was all white and bluey, and his eyes were open. His lips were purplish and had all like slaver on. It turned into something like fluff. Norma covered him up, and I said, Norma, I've got nothing to do with this. I should tell on you, but I'll not. Little Lassie was there, and it was crying. And she said, Don't you start, I'll do the same to you. It still cried, and she went to get hold of its throat, but it growled at her. She said, Now, now, don't be hasty. We went home, and I took little Lassie home. Norma was acting kind of funny and making twitchy faces and spreading her fingers out. She said, This is the first, but it'll not be the last. I was frightened then. I carried Lassie and put her down over the railway, and we went up Cross Hill Roadway. Norma went into the house and she got a pair of scissors, and she put them down her pants. She says, go and get a pen. I said, no, what for? She says, to write a note on his stomach. And I wouldn't get the pen. She had a Gillette razor blade. It had Gillette on. We went back to the blocks, and Norma cut his hair. She tried to cut his leg and his ear with the blade. She tried to show me it was sharp. She took the top of her dress where it was raggy and cut it. It made a slit. A man came down the railway bank with a little girl with long blonde hair. He had a red checked shirt on and blue denim jeans. I walked away. She hid the razor blade under a big square concrete block. She left the scissors beside him. She got out before me over the grass onto Scottswood Road. I couldn't run on the grass because I just had my black slippers on. When we got along a bit, she says, May, you shouldn't have done because you'll get into trouble. And I hadn't done nothing. I haven't got the guts. I couldn't kill a bird by the neck or throat or anything. It's horrible that. We went up the steps and went home. I was nearly crying. I said, if Pat finds out, she'll kill you. Never mind killing Brian. 
because Pat's more like a tomboy. She's always climbing in the old buildings and that. Later on, I was helping to look for Brian, and I was trying to let on to Pat that I knew where he was on the blocks. But Norma said, he'll not be over there. He never goes there. And she convinced Pat he wasn't there. I got shouted in about half past seven, and I stayed in. I got woke up about half past eleven, and we stood at the door as Brian had been found. The other day, Norma wanted to get put in a home. She says, will you run away with us? And I said, no. She says, if you get put in a home and you feed the little ones and murder them, then run away again. I have read the above statement, and I have been told that I can correct, alter, or add anything I wish. This statement is true. I have made it of my own free will. Mary Flora Bell, signed at 6.55 p.m. Detective Dobson informed Mary he was sure she was guilty of the murder of Brian Howe and that she was going to be charged with first-degree murder. Unwilling to cower, even in the presence of law enforcement, she was defiant, saying, That's all right with me. When Norma heard that Mary blamed her for the murder, she said to her, I never. I'll pay you back for this. It didn't scare Mary in the slightest. She had always been the alpha in their relationship. The only thing that did scare Mary was the prospect of being hanged for the crime. England had done away with the death penalty in 1964, but being so young, her knowledge of the law was likely informed by depictions in the media. While in custody, Mary told the police responsible for her care that she wanted to be a nurse when she grew up. It had nothing to do with helping people. She wanted to stick needles in people because she was thrilled by the idea of getting paid to hurt people. A kitten lived in the jail as a mascot of sorts. Mary got a hold of it and wrapped her hands around the animal. She began to squeeze. An officer intervened just in time. When they admonished Mary for this act, Mary insisted that the kitten couldn't feel anything. Digging herself in deeper, she said, I like hurting small things that can't fight back. Another guard reported Mary saying, Murder isn't that bad. We all die sometime anyway. Mary was evaluated by a court-appointed psychiatrist. Among their findings was a complete absence of remorse. She also appeared to be a stranger to emotions residing beyond the realm of anger and resentment. They suggested that the medication overdose to which she was subjected by her mother likely damaged her brain at a critical phase of its development. They speculated that this likely left her with a tendency to dissociate. They also attributed her lack of ability to empathize with others to this event. The injury was to her frontal cortex. Her lack of impulse control and inability to recognize sound judgment were assumed to be other effects of the neurological damage she incurred. 
She reportedly ate Valiums as early as one year of age. Mary Flora Bell's trial began in December 1968. Forensic DNA analysis was still in its infancy in the late 1960s, but some damning evidence was found within the margins of the crime scene nonetheless. Fibers from the clothing of both Mary and Norma were discovered on Martin Brown's body. Mary's behavior after the murders was also highly incriminating. The trial lasted nine days. During the trial, Mary and Norma's dispositions differed markedly. Mary reacted to every question with a steely resolve. Not only did she not show fear, but she appeared to be bored of it all, even with the evidence mounting against her. Norma, on the other hand, struggled with the questioning and often required emotional support. Mary was asked about the drawing containing the word tablet. She claimed it was inspired by neighborhood gossip regarding Martin Brown's death. Norma struggled to process everything, and the judge ruled that she was not mentally fit to be tried as a willing and equal participant in the murders. This infuriated Mary, who suspected that, due to Norma's perceived inability to cope with being a suspect, all the blame would fall on her. She was also jealous of the warmth and support Norma received from her family. It was a completely different story with Mary's family. Her mother, ever the narcissist, cried loudly, stormed in and out of the courtroom, and generally made a spectacle of herself. Her husband sat silently, ignoring her. Despite her young age, Spectators in the courtroom would later remark that Mary Bell gave them the creeps. During the trial, one of the prosecutors asked Norma if Mary ever described a method of execution or actually instructed her on how to commit a murder effectively. Norma, considerably shaken by the memory, gasped and said, Oh, yes. The girls blamed each other whenever they took the stand. They both denied killing Brian Howe, but they acknowledged that they had spent time with him the day he died. Norma told the court that Mary instructed Brian to lie down. From there, she, quote, started to hurt him, end quote. Norma was asked to demonstrate how Mary pinched Brian's nose and covered his mouth to suffocate him. Norma claimed she tried to dislodge Mary from that position when he began to turn blue. Mary was stronger than Norma, so Norma was unable to pull her off the boy. Mary asked Norma to finish him off for her, as her hands were, quote, getting thick, end quote. Norma said Brian was still alive at this point. She ran away in a panic. While Mary testified, she was asked if she really felt Norma's responsibility for both murders was total. The prosecutor asked her if she was afraid Norma might turn on her and commit a similar act. Mary said, She would not dare because I would turn around and punch her nose. December 17, 1968. After deliberating for four hours, 
the jury returned with their verdicts. Norma Bell was acquitted on all charges. Mary Flora Bell was found guilty. The judge declared that Mary was dangerous and a serious threat to other children. 11-year-old Mary Flora Bell was sent to Red Bank Facility, a prison for juvenile offenders. It was initially an all-boys prison, but a process of sexual integration was underway. She received a sentence of four years. During her entire four-year sentence, there were no other female inmates. One staff member took pity on Mary, who was drowning in an ocean of testosterone. Occasionally, they would bring her home on a weekend to play with their daughters. However humane this act may have seemed, this staff member put their children's safety and their professional standing at risk. Anybody who was concerned that throwing a lone female into an institution full of males was like throwing a rib roast to a pack of wolves could rest easy. Surely there was a great deal of repressed aggression and sexuality within the general population. It was bursting at the seams and drawn magnetically to anyone who accepted victimhood as their destiny. Mary Flora Bell was never willing to live out the rest of her days suffering the torments of the chronically wounded. Determined to establish a reputation as someone who guaranteed regret to anyone who struck first, Mary pummeled anybody who so much as spoke ill to her. Sure enough, when one boy called her a murderer in the dining hall, she punched him in the face. When Betty went to visit, she capitalized on the situation by smuggling in lingerie she forced Mary to wear. Betty would take photos and sell them to tabloids or anybody else who was willing to pony up the cash. She would also urge her to write to her, and she would sell the letters to the media. Mary stopped writing to her when she found out her mother was exploiting her for cash, as she had when Mary was a toddler. Betty was still an addict and would stop at nothing to get her fix. Eventually, Mary lobbied to have Betty banned from the institution altogether. In 1973, Mary was transferred to the Style Prison for Women. It was there where Mary entered into her first sexual relationship. Betty managed to visit her at this prison. She said to Mary, Jesus Christ, what next? You're a murderer and now you're a lesbian. Not only was Mary dating women, but she rejected her female gender wholesale. She made up her face to create the impression of five o'clock shadow. She rolled up her socks and placed them in the crotch of her pants to contrive the illusion of male genitals. She even went as far as to ask the medical staff if they would perform a sex change operation on her, but this was not a service they were willing and or able to provide. In June 1976, Mary Bell was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison, whose comparably lenient standard of incarceration is rewarded to inmates from maximum security who have demonstrated an improvement in behavior. During her time in Moore, she escaped for a brief period with another inmate. They caroused about town, drinking, having sex, and amusing themselves in other ways 
with two young men they met shortly after departing from the prison. They were caught shortly thereafter. This incident received significant coverage in the media. Mary Flora Bell spent a total of 11 years in custody. Four years after her release, she gave birth to a baby girl on May 25, 1984. The girl's childhood would be fairly turbulent since people would find out about Mary's true identity and she would be forced to flee the community and resettle in another part of the UK. Mary was initially guaranteed legally sanctioned anonymity only until her 18th birthday. Now that she had a child, she was granted lifelong anonymity to ensure the safety of her daughter. Her current identity and location are unknown. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.